Lord, thank you for your word. My goodness. Speaking of gifts that I take for granted, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would bring it to life this morning, even as we study this verse out of this amazing commissioning that you gave your servant Joshua 3,500 years ago. May we hear it. May we hear the commission. May it have application in our own lives that is, um, that is urgent and relevant. May you draw us near to yourself and stir our affection for your word this morning in our worship together. Lord, I pray that as I preach, I would decrease. I must because you must increase. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there was a conference I went to, and it was, um, it was 15 to 18 years ago. I just graduated college, and um, there was a new, I was going into youth ministry. I, I was just super wet behind the ears, didn't have any experience, and there was a, a conference that was going to be put on at North Point Community Church in Atlanta. I, at the time, lived very close to Atlanta, and it was going to be for uh, ministry leaders, and, and uh, it, Andy Stanley, uh, a pastor of North Point Community, was one of my favorite communicators, and I knew some of the names. In fact, this conference had like the biggest names in the Christian world of the day that were coming to speak. And by the way, that conference, the Catalyst Conference, is still going on to this day. But this was one of the, maybe this might have been like year three of this conference. It was the early years. But they had the biggest names who had written all the bestsellers, the things that I wanted to read or was trying to get my hands on or hearing everybody talk about. So I thought, I'm going to go and I'm going to learn from these, uh, these big dogs in the faith about ministry leadership going into ministry. And I went to this conference and was so excited to hear all these big name speakers. And, and boy, they went. Everyone was telling us all about uh, 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 I think Andy just written his book called Visioneering and about how to uh, think and cast strategic vision for church growth and all these authors uh, uh, parsing God's word on different topics that were relevant to uh, building uh, the church, um, uh, being successful in church ministry. And it was kind of this who's who of famous Christians. And then the last speaker was the only name on the docket that I didn't know, that I wasn't familiar with. It's ironic, I'd become most familiar with this man, but I didn't know him at the time. And his name, uh, as listed on the bulletin, was Dr. Howard Hendricks. And, um, and he was the last speaker. So all these other guys with relevant bestsellers, all their books were on sale. Everybody had a booth in the lobby and you could just pick up all the latest and greatest this guy had no booth. This guy had no latest and greatest books. He was the only name I didn't know. And when it got to his time to speak, Andy Stanley came out to introduce him. He said, hey, this, this last speaker is a, is a mentor, probably my most dear, uh, valued mentor in my life. Uh, his voice has imparted uh, life to me like no other voice, prepared me for ministry like no other voice. Um, he, was a, he was Andy's seminary professor, as he has been to so many others. And he called out, uh, lovingly referred to him as Prof Hendricks. And there was this elderly dude who literally crushed his way out there on a cane. Little old guy. He was probably in his mid-80s at the time. Crushed out there in the cane, with a cane. He had an eye patch on. Little guy, you know, right here on the podium. And there was a few thousand of us there. And uh, he, he's kind of gruff. He kind of growls when he speaks. And he began, he said, well, I just have one thing for you. And I'm going, okay, you know, we paid pretty good money for this conference, but, you know, as long as it's something really good, then okay. And he said, read your Bibles. I thought, really? Like, that's the only thing I knew I ought to be doing coming here. I, you know, I, th I thought there'd be more. You know, this is the last guy on the docket. He said, read your Bibles. Read them in the mornings. He said, read your Bibles in the evenings. 
He said, read your Bible until it reads your life. He says, wrap God's word around your life until your life is wrapped around God's word. Hide God's word in your heart until your life is hidden in God's word. He literally went on for about a half hour and said nothing other than read your Bible. I'll be honest, in my immaturity at the time when he began, I I was kind of thinking, gosh, last speaker was hoping for a little more. By the time he finished, I was really convicted. I remember that. What I'll tell you, 15, 18 years later, I actually tried to look up this, this Catalyst conference online, couldn't find any details. I, they only go back so far in terms of the resources available. I wanted to hear the talk again, couldn't find it. I uh, looked for my notes, couldn't find them, so that's why I'm fuzzy on the details. But I'll tell you this, I don't remember who the other speakers were. I don't remember what the best sellers were that lined the hallways that everyone was reading. I just remember the old guy who got up there with the eye patch and growled at us to read our Bibles. All the other messages have passed away. All the other bestsellers come and go. That's the enduring word you need. Read your Bibles. Can I tell you, I was in my prep this week for Joshua 1.8, and that, in a nutshell, is what God tells Joshua. That's our verse this morning. That's what he's going to give him. Uh, He's going to give him this passage that is a commissioning. It's a transition from one generation to another in Israel. Moses has died. That's the first few verses. That's scary for Joshua. That's scary for you. You've always had Moses. Moses is the man of God. Moses has spoken with God face to face. They can trust Moses' voice. Moses is gone. Moses has commissioned Joshua. Joshua's a young man. He's afraid. God says, you're now going to take the people in the Jordan. That's scary stuff. And God tells him this, picking up in verse 5 and following, says, Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause the people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or turn from it to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You know, as I meditated on this text this week, What stuck out with me is that the front and the back of our passage, the book ends are God saying to Joshua, I will be with you. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm going with you. Your your power is not from your presence or your wisdom. It's from mine. The reason you can be strong and courageous is I'm going to be with you. At the beginning, I won't leave you or forsake you. At the end, I will be with you. So the bookends of the text are this assurance of a loving relationship with God. I love you. I'm with you. In the middle of it, he says, here's my word, speak it, meditate on it, obey it, so here's the truth, live by the truth, and you'll experience a prosperous and successful life. You'll have life, truth and life in the context of a loving relationship. Um, 
ministry that I started that I work with called Downline Ministries, we have a definition of discipleship that sounds a lot like that. We say discipleship is truth in life in the context of an authentic or loving relationship. That's what it is. It's, it's, uh, it's Jesus inviting the 12 saying, hey, follow me. The idea is if you follow me, if we're in this real authentic relationship where you get to see my life and me see yours and he's going to do life with them and he's going to love them and they're going to know that he loves them. He's going to say to them, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. There's an assurance of relation within that. He's going to give them the truth of God's word, and he's going to give them his life. Paul would say it this way to the Thessalonians, 1 Thess 2.8. He said, we loved you so much, Thessalonians. We gave you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you are so dear to us, bookends, we loved you. So what do we give you? The word of God in our lives. You know what the goal of discipleship is? It's not more knowledge. The goal of discipleship ought never to be that you become a Pharisee. The goal of discipleship is life change. It's Christ-likeness. It's, it's, uh, Prof. Hendricks used to say, it's not information, it's transformation. That's the goal of discipleship. You know what I see in this text? I see God inviting Joshua into a discipleship relationship. He's inviting Joshua into a life-changing, life-giving relationship with him. And he's doing it through the medium of his word. He's saying, you come to me over the meeting ground of my word, you speak it, you meditate on it, you live by it, you're gonna experience radical life change. You'll find a life that is prosperous and successful out of a life that is lost and broken. Now, in case you're going, hey, is that relevant for me? I sure hope so. I believe, even though this is given to Joshua 3,500 years ago, I believe that God invites every single one of us into a discipleship relationship with him, the almighty God of this universe, our creator. He invites us to a loving, discipling relationship with him the same way as Joshua, through the medium of his word. We have the same opportunity for a life-giving, life-transforming relationship with God through obedience to his word. Same opportunity Joshua had. The first thing I notice in this verse that we've memorized together, verse eight, this book of the law. This book, you, can't, you almost can't read that without emphasis, can you? This, Joshua, this book of the law, this is the one you must speak, meditate on, apply. Don't, don't look to the right, don't look, there's not there's anything good over there, it's not there's not anything good, but this book has gotta be your master, this one. Now, in Joshua's day, this book of the law was Genesis through Deuteronomy, it was the Pentateuch. It was the revealed word of God in Joshua's day. So what does that look like in our day? I believe that is Genesis through Revelation. This is the revealed word of God in our day. What a privilege we have to be living in this day where we have so much more of God's word to understand his mind, will, emotion, and heart, and mission. Boy, what an advantage. And so the application of our life is this book, my revealed word. Make it your master. Let me, let me just, just pause right there before we go further and say, why do we do that? Number, number one, uh, this, this book is true. Now, there's a lot of books you could read that have truth in them. This is the only one you can read that's altogether and perfectly true. That's it. Again, I hope when you read other books and other authors and other trusted you know, leaders and ministry guys, and I hope, you, I hope you always have a filter for everything you read, everything you watch, everything you hear, because we hope you're feeding from sources where there's much truth to be found, but there's no perfect truth outside of this. This is altogether true. Our statement of faith says it's a perfect treasure of heavenly wisdom. That's the first reason this book is preeminent among all others. It's inerrant. It's without error, without any mixture of error. It's inspired. It's the very 
breath of God. He breathed this word out through the agency of man. He, he used man to bring forth his word that we might know him through his word. It's inerrant, it's inspired. Let me tell you what else it is. It's sufficient. Think about what that word means, sufficient. That means it's enough. Like if this were the only book you owned, that would be okay. This book is sufficient for all of life, you can literally navigate right now to the end of your life, leaning on the wisdom of this book alone, and you've got enough. You can't say that about any other book. You may have really good books in your library. I hope you do. No book is sufficient for your everyday experience or circumstance except this one. This one is altogether perfect and it's sufficient. Everything you need to know is right here. If your life is in the ditch this morning, you're angry, you're overwhelmed, you're anxious, it's not that the word of God is insufficient, it's that you're not submitted to it. It's sufficient. Let me give you one more, it's authoritative. Um, it's authoritative. Uh, this word is right and it has the full weight of the authority of God. Uh, it's the only book you ought to follow and adhere to without question and wholeheartedly. It's the final authority on our lives, whether we like it or not. Again, it's true. It's inerrant. It is the inspired word of God, and it is authoritative. We may not even know what it says, but that doesn't change the fact that it's authoritative. Listen, we don't take the word, read what it says, read some other you know, popular authors of our day, talk to some friends, kind of pull it all together and come up with our best idea. We try our own thoughts and opinions and emotions and feelings and that of everyone else we know by the truth of God's word. Because there's only one voice that's authoritative, it's this one. Every other voice that's helpful in our life is trying to lovingly help us discern how to know and apply this word that's authoritative. By the way, that's why this time in our worship service, a time where we um, preach the word, it's, it's not as important to us who is preaching as it is what is being preached. We, um, we don't talk about just the wisdom of our day. We don't talk about merely issues that are being dealt with. Here's, here's what we do. Here's our whole philosophy of this sermon period in our worship service, which we think is critical and central, is we want to be a church that's expositorily preaching God's word, meaning we're exposing the word of God before the people of God and letting the Holy Spirit of God let the lion of the word loose so it can radically impact, influence, affect, and change our lives. We are a people that hear the word, and in community we try to apply it and flesh it out so it can change us and conform us into the image of Christ. We expose the word. It's not about the personality of the person doing that, it's about the truth found right here. That's why it's one of our core values. This is a time where we together huddle up under the word of God. Okay, this book, this book, Joshua, this book, Harvest, this book shall not depart from your mouths. All right, three orientations we're going to get to the Word of God, to how we live as a people of the book. Three orientations. The first one, we speak it. Um, 
The idea is the word of God is so in us that it can't help but come out of us. Now that's not gonna be possible unless we are strong in the second orientation of meditating on God's word, we'll get there. But the idea is a people of the book are people that speak God's word. Now, that means we speak about it. That means we speak about it to one another. We dialogue about God's word. When we have uh, things we're struggling with, which is every day for us as a part of humanity, the decisions we have to make, fork in the roads, uh, circumstances we have to deal with that we didn't want, we have to make sense of what we're experiencing and know how to navigate it wisely. We ought to be dialoguing about God's word. What does this word say specifically about this or principally about this? You get good brothers and sisters in community dialoguing about what God's word says about this part of our life so we can be submitted to it. Talking about the word and speaking the actual word. Ephesians uh, 4, 15 does not say speak your best thoughts and opinions to one another in love. No, boy, that'd be a train wreck. It says speak the truth. Again, there's only one book that's altogether true. There's only one source of wisdom that's perfectly true. It's speak the word of God to one another in love. It's in the context of even when that's a rebuke, speak the truth. Don't tell us what our itching ears want to hear. Somebody tell me the truth, what God's word says about what I'm doing. If I'm living in disobedience, tell me. Not according to what you think or what I think, but what God thinks. In our discipleship communities, whether you're in one uh, that meets midweek or on a Sunday morning, uh, one of the options that many of our groups do is our, whoever preaches each week puts together questions, four or five questions that help you to dialogue about the word of God. Speak about the word. Let what enters your mind now works its way down your heart. Now let's bubble it out. Let's speak about it. Let's better understand it and help each other to apply it. Um, one of the discipleship tools that we've created that our elders have worked really hard and pastoral staff have worked really hard to create is called the Gospel Journey. It's a bookmark that shows you how to daily read the Bible in relationship with another person. So we tell young guys, find an older man in the faith. Find a godly man, ladies, find a godly woman who's further along in their walk with Christ than you, who's got more life experience under the belt, who knows God's faithfulness more farther and beyond what you know, and journey with them for 9, 10, 12 weeks. And what that journey looks like is you're reading the Word of God, you're meditating on it, and you come in together, and you're speaking about it, and you're speaking it. Pretty simple. That's what God said. You do that, you're going to know what it is to be prosperous and successful, which is to live wisely in this life. Um, I think that uh, this is a relevant topic in our day uh, because we are a, a people that are prone to listening to so many other sources uh, before and above the Word of God. Um, to be able to speak about the Word of God and speak the Word of God, the second orientation that it gives us to be a people that not just speaks but meditates on it day and night is necessary. We can't talk about the word and speak the word of truth. We can't speak truth to one another unless we're doing this, unless we're meditating on it. What does it mean to meditate? I think meditation is um, prayerful consideration. Prayerful consideration. I was convicted this week thinking about um, every day I'll read my Bible. Every day I'll read my Bible. Sometimes I'm not prayerfully considering what it says. There are times where I'm in a hurry. There are a lot of times where I'm distracted, whether it's because of my schedule, because of how little time I've given myself, or maybe I got plenty of time, but my mind and heart are just on other things. I literally have this experience regularly. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I've got one of those disorders, but I'll read a page of my Bible, like a whole page, and then go, wait, what did I just read? Like the entire time I was reading, I was just thinking about something totally different. 
And I'll, I'll be like, I, I have no idea. I have to start again. Five minutes later, just, just re- push reset. God, help me to, fo- I want to actually be with you and considering you as I read your word. It's not just check a box. It's not just get your reading done. It's prayerfully consider what God has said is true about him and you in this world. By the way, um, I think that at least two byproducts or, 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 or primary things happen if you will meditate in God's word. I believe this is like law. The first one is that you're going to have intimacy with God through meditation on his word. You can have intimacy. So if you're here today and you're going, man, I, I don't feel particularly intimate with God. I feel particularly distant. I'd be willing to bet, having been there many times myself, that you don't have a healthy routine of meditation on his word. I'd be willing to bet it. Because if you are spending time, it's like you're in dialogue. God is speaking, you're listening. You're considering, you're questioning. The Holy Spirit is guiding this time where you are in thought and dialogue with God and he's ministering to you through his very presence and his word. You know what happens when you're in that kind of a dynamic relationship? There's intimacy that's built. It's the same if you're married. You took a vow, you got married. Um, Intimacy doesn't happen accidentally now, does it? Just living under the same roof and just having the same last name does not make you intimate with one another. You have to continue in that pursuit that brought you together. You gotta continue to carve out time. Like uh, my wife and I, we try to have we try to have a date night every week. It's been very difficult lately, but we try. But here's what happens if we don't. So it's been very difficult. When we don't, here's what happens: we're still cohabitating, we're still co-parenting, we're still co-laboring. Um, we're high-fiving as we cross each other. You know, like strangers in the night. Sometimes she's going to feed a baby, and I'm, you know, gonna fix dinner and routine. I mean, we're like we're there. We're on the same team, but we're not deepening our relationship. Matter of fact, if we do that long enough, which seems friendly enough, we slowly grow distant from one another. So that date night routine we have, it, it's it's selfishly very fun, but it's also us realizing we must carve out time in the otherwise busy and distracted world where we're sitting there, no distractions, and let's dialogue with one another. Let's talk about where we are, what's going on, what we've been thinking. Let me hear what you have to say. Let me be able to think about it, consider it. Let me submit to you as you submit to me in love. Like we have to have that in order to have each other. But if we do have it, we will have each other. We will have intimacy. Even through conflict, we'll get to intimacy. It's the same with God. He's invited you into a life-changing, dynamic, life-giving relationship through meditation on his word. There's no accidental, coincidental, you don't just arrive there with God. You meditate, be with him. Second byproduct of doing this, meditation on God's word, is that now God will become primary in informing the way you think. By the way, whoever informs the way you think controls the way you live. Whoever informs the way you think controls the way you live. So let's do a little exercise. I don't mean this to be shaming for anybody, but just do this. You can hide this piece of paper from your spouse and you can burn it before you leave. But here, here's the exercise. Write on a piece of paper. So I have four numbers. Just jot. First number, here's what I want you to write. How much time do you average each day in uh, meditating, so prayerfully considering God's word? Just write a number. The number might be two. Nobody even knows if you mean two minutes or two hours. Okay, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. This is for you. You just write the number. How, 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 how much time do you average 
meditating, prayerfully considering in this dialogue with God, his word. How much time do you average each day? Now, this is going to have a point to it. Again, this is not just to frustrate. This is going somewhere. Second number I want you to write down. How much time do you average each day hearing or reading from your favorite news outlet? So watching it on TV or reading it on your iPhone as it feeds um, to your news. How much time do you average each day hearing or reading, interacting with from your favorite news source? Third number. How much time do you average each day reading or listening to the blog or podcast of your most trusted and favorite blogger or podcaster? Okay? By the way, if it's zero, so be it. But just write the number. How much time do you average each day? Trusted sources, this guy, this gal, they're the smartest, wisest, most trusted, godliest person. Okay, how much do you average there? And then finally, how much time do you average each day on social media? Now you're, now you're going to the full counsel of the world. Okay? Every genius out there that's on Twitter, you're, you're allowing in. Okay? So how much time do you average there? Give me a number. That's Facebook. That's Twitter. That's Instagram. That's every outlet of social media. All right. There ought to be four numbers on your page. You don't have to show them to me or anyone else. But I want you to look at them for a moment. And here's what I want you to consider. I think this is just law. Whichever one of those numbers is largest, let me just say this. That is the voice that is the loudest in your life. Whoever you give the most time to will most influence your thinking. How you think determines how you live. It's your worldview. Okay, whichever number or numbers are the largest, you are, that's the puppet master of your life. That, you're living your life according to the wisdom of fill in the blank. I would venture to say, if you participated in this exercise, there are probably many of you where the largest number is one of those three numbers outside of meditation on God's word, which just means this. You've chosen to allow someone's voice to dictate what wise living looks like in your life, someone's other than God's. God is telling Joshua, Joshua, don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Come to me. No one knows perfectly and sufficiently and authoritatively how you should live wisely and prosper like I do. Joshua, I love you. I will be with you no matter what. Come to me. Speak, meditate. Apply it. You'll know what it is to live. Whoever's got the loudest voice in your life is controlling your experience of this life. Third orientation, of course, is he says, be careful. Be careful now, because what my word says is not always going to be congruent with the cultural narratives of your day. When it comes to sexuality, when it comes to um, marriage, when it comes to your money, when it comes to your purpose, what you're doing here, what my word says, God said, what I say is not always going to be consistent with what everyone else says that you've allowed voice in your life. Be careful to apply what I've said. All that is written in this book. Be careful. 
you're gonna have to be careful because God's idea of life and how to navigate it well and how to have it abundantly and to the full is very different than what every other source you're going to is going to tell you. And he says, you gotta be careful to apply. Now the word that was hard for us in our, in our pastoral cohort, we're chewing on this and meditating on this together. One of the young guys, Jeff Trotter, he said, you know what's tough for me on that verse is the word all. Be careful to do not some, not as much as you can. Be, Joshua, your entire personal and the welfare of my people depends on this. Be careful to do according to all that is written in this book. All of it. Listen, um, if you ever come to me or any of our pastoral staff or elders for pastoral counseling, by the way, what we are going to do is we're going to listen to you and then we're going to do our best to apply God's word. I'm not going to say that's interesting. I knew I had an aunt that went through that one time. Let me give you what she did. No, I'm going to say, I'm going to, literally, when you're talking, I am, I am flipping through pages of scripture. And, it, you know, I'm only so good at this. I need to know the word more to be a better biblical counselor. But to the best I can, I'm going, what does God say about that? Because he does. And generally where those counseling sessions land is with an open Bible reading and then talking about how we flesh that out in this situation. I'm trying to help you live according to God's word that you can prosper and know how to be wise in your circumstance. Even if it means you have to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. I wanna help you with that. That's really my only goal in there. Um, I've noticed in my premarital counseling that about a third of the couples that come for premarital counseling, by the way, I'm always premarital, premaritally counseling one couple at a time. Can't do more than one, I get confused on who's where and, and whose issues are whose, and nobody likes that. But, uh, but one couple, as soon as this one gets married, we go to the next one, and it's just, it's just a part of my rhythm of ministry. And I've noticed that about a third of the couples that I counsel, about a third, um, are either cohabitating or um, allowing some form of sexual immorality to exist presently in their relationship, about a third. Now, I haven't found but maybe one that does not know that God lovingly forbids sexual immorality in their relationship and reserves sexual intimacy until marriage. When I tell them that, they're not going, what? That explains so much of our problems. They know that. They're informed. They're not submitted. Okay? Now, usually, by the way, these are oftentimes really just young people that love the Lord. And here's what they're doing. They're, they're justifying in their minds whether they say it honestly or not. They're saying, you know, they're saying, look, I, okay, I'm not perfect. You're probably not perfect either, right? Nope, never. And you know, in a lot of my, I'm going to church, I'm serving, I'm actually spending time in his word every day for the first time ever, I'm trying to pray, I'm trying to honor one another, I'm trying to do conflict well, and you know, this life we're just doing, this area of our life we're doing okay with, we're just not doing great. That's generally the speech of how you justify sexual immorality in your relationship. That probably sounds familiar about you in some area of your life. Okay, you know what, well, I'm not perfect in any area, okay, I'm sorry, I'm this area. Of, listen, God's just saying, if you will listen to me, God. If you will meditate on what I'm telling you, and then if you'll be careful to apply, you'll know something that you won't otherwise experience. He's saying it for you. He's saying it out of love for you. He's saying, I've got something for you if you'll trust me. It doesn't come, the gift is not unwrapped with conditional obedience. 
It's unwrapped with joyful obedience. When you'll trust him even with what you don't understand and what you didn't want to experience and the circumstances around you. Look, all of us have a tendency to do this. We are often more like Moses' generation than Joshua's generation. Moses' generation did this. They were really excited to obey God. When they saw how it would directly and immediately increase their material wealth, comfort, or well-being. They were all in. Wait, you want to do what? You want to free us from the, okay, great. What do you want us to do? Blood on the doors, no problem. We're getting out of here. Now, once he gets them out of Egypt, and their backs are against the Red Sea, and they don't know, this is no fun anymore. Here come the uh, hundreds of chariots of Pharaoh, and they don't know what God's going to do. They don't say, God, we're ready and waiting for your word. We trust you. They say, why'd you bring us out here to die? Shaking their fist at God. He doesn't do what I would have done if I were God and just lightning bolt the whole crew. Instead, he parts the Red Sea. He takes them through it. He closes it behind them on their captives, and, and they're free. And they even have a worship service. God, that was awesome. We enjoyed that. That felt really good. We like you. And then they wandered for three days, and they had no food or they drink. And they said, God, you're terrible. You didn't even think through your whole plan. You got us out here. You freed us in some miraculous way, and now there's nothing here. We had food and drink in Egypt. Wow. God doesn't strike them dead, as I would have done. He provides manna from heaven. All right, this is good. We like this. This is nice. And he even says, just take only a day's worth so you can learn to trust me. Let's go training wheels here, Israel. And, of course, they went out and hoarded all they could, and so God had to disease it so that they could learn a lesson. Anyway, they keep going. This, this, this back and forth. They get to, um, they, he's, they, they've gotten the law at Sinai. They're going to go up to Kadesh Barnea to go into the land. He takes a spy from, uh, a leader from each tribe to be a spy into the land. They see it. It's everything God said it would be. They come back. They say, the land is awesome. God is awesome. But there's really big people, descendants of the Nephilim, they're in there. The Anakites, if we go in, they will lick us up like the ox licks grass, one of my favorite verses. And, uh, and so they go, God, what are you doing? We need to find a leader. Forget Moses. We need a leader that will take us back to Egypt. They were great at obedience as long as they understood exactly how it directly brought them comfort, security, and prosperity, wealth. They weren't good at trusting God and enduring in obedience when it didn't make any sense or they didn't understand or it caused them to suffer. He didn't like that. When Joshua and Caleb stood up and says, maybe we should trust God, they picked up stones and said, let's get rid of these guys. You know what that is? That's, that's conditional obedience at best. That might be too, too nice. But you know what it is? If you think about it, it's kind of manipulative. It's kind of like God will obey you if fill in the blank. Like, like if you show up in the way we want you to, then you can be God. So it's obeying God's word to control God. I want to tell you this. We don't obey God's word to control him. We obey God's word out of our desperate desire to be controlled by him. This flesh is crooked. This world is crooked. Many of the influences I got are crooked. I need to be controlled by God. So I surrender to his word and his spirit. I don't obey to control him. I obey so that he controls me. That generation missed it. The tagline of their generation is, why have you brought us out here to die? 
They wouldn't trust God with what they didn't understand. And theirs was a story of what might have been. This next generation, God says, hey, Joshua, listen, I'm going to put this on the bottom shelf. My heart aches over the last 40. My people just died wandering in the wilderness. That wasn't my desire for them. Listen, Joshua, I love you. Do you believe me? You don't have to be afraid. I'm not going anywhere. You forsake me, I won't forsake you. You be unfaithful, I'll be faithful. Don't worry. Listen, don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Take this book. Know me. Speak of me. Careful to apply this. And I'm going to prosper you. You'll have good success. Bottom shelf. You know what? Can I give you a little spoiler alert if you haven't read Joshua? This generation in Scripture is known by several commentators as the greatest generation in all of Scripture. Nothing fancy about them. Generation of orphans, daddy's died in the wilderness, no military achievement, no technological advancement. You know what it is? They had nothing. But they were willing to depend on God. They did this right here. Pretty doggone well. They marched around those walls of Jericho looking like fools because God said do it. Seven days. Seventh day they blew those trumpets not knowing how in the world that was going to work for a victory in battle. That made no sense. That was not what any of the generals of that day were doing. And they obeyed. And God prospered them. Now let me say this. Last thing I want to do is make sure you understand what this means. For then you will, have, uh, you will make your way prosperous and have good success. Here's what, that, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you'll have what Moses' generation of Israel had. It doesn't mean if you do this with integrity, then you'll have every material blessing and comfort and financial blessing that you could ever want immediately right now. That would spoil us. That would ruin us. That, 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 that reminds me of the Proverbs 30 where the guy says, God, don't make me rich or then I won't depend on you anymore. That's wisdom. I don't ever pray that, but that's wisdom. <laughs> Listen, you know, one of, one of the popular stereotypes of Bible Belt Christians, this grieves me, is, here's the profile, popular profile, rich, miserable. Wow, really wealthy, miserable people that are Southern Christians. That's it's not always true, of course, praise God, but it's a profile that's out there. Can I tell you, there's, I don't know if there's two more antithetical words than rich and miserable to Jesus. We're meant to be Christians, We're meant to be like Christ. He wasn't rich, and he certainly wasn't miserable. Prosperity, you will make your way prosperous, doesn't mean you will get materially wealthy. That's just, that's not true of this generation. It's not true. The promises of God are true. It's not true of of virtually anyone in Scripture. That's just not God's design for uh, the end of this life is not that we be materially wealthy. If God blesses you in such a way, praise God, stewardship for his glory. But that's not his desire is not to make all of us rich in material gain. It's to be rich in him. So prosperous, I want to say this about this generation of Joshua. They weren't prosperous once they settled the land and divided up among the twelves. Prosperity. No, they were prosperous on the journey. They had a different experience than uh, Moses' generation, who was always filled with anxiety, always complaining, never satisfied, shaking their fist in anger, bitter and resentful, and we could go on. That was how they lived. Joshua's generation, humbly dependent, 
knowing their place, believing God. You know what God said to them in uh, Joshua chapter three? If you'll consecrate yourselves to me, I'm gonna do wonders in your midst. There's, their legacy was the generation that God did wonders in their midst. What was the difference in these generations? They obeyed God's word. They clung to it. They submitted their lives to it. They were prosperous on the journey long before they had anything to their name. You know what they had on that journey? They had a peace that passed understanding. God said, I'll never leave you, his presence. You know what they had on that journey? They had the power of God. They blew trumpets, walls fell down, enemies killed themselves. They, they, it was unexplainable. The power of God literally lived among them and within them. You know, the peace of God and the power of God. They had an assurance of his promise. They knew what the future held, even though the, country, the, the enemies around them didn't. They knew exactly what was coming, they knew the future. And they had freedom, even though they didn't have a land. They were the Lord's. Go what he says, do what he do. They weren't slaves to themselves or to their appetites or to anyone else. They were free. And so they were victorious long before they had any victory. The people of God are meant to live this way, full of hope, knowing the future, joy in the midst of circumstances, literally living lives that are victorious long before you have anything. You're victorious. That's what it is to be prosperous. It's to be full. In context, I did a word study. It means to, to experience what God has for you in its fullness. Maybe that's all I needed to say. Do you want to experience what God has for you in its fullness? He's given you exactly how to do it. Submit yourselves to this. You will be prosperous beyond your wildest dreams. You may be chasing prosperity, but not even getting close to prospering. We got a whole lot of American Christians who know prosperity, but don't know what it is to prosper. God says, this book, you'll know victory, you'll know peace, you'll know joy, you'll have assurance and hope, this book. And he says you'll have good success. The word there is to act and live wisely. You won't live as a fool. You'll be wise. You know, the more I read the Bible, the more I notice if I really dwell in it, so this is week to week. The weeks, I'm really in it. And, and by the way, my vocation is helpful. The fact that I gotta show up Sunday and say something about God's word a lot of times, I have to dwell in it. But I've noticed something. When I dwell in it, it dwells in me and it changes the way I think and it changes the way I live. So honestly, God has, has me in vocational ministry and it's the grace and mercy of God. Because if I wasn't in it, maybe I wouldn't spend the time in the word that I do and therefore I know I wouldn't live as I do. Not that I live perfectly, but what a grace in my life. But you sure don't have to be, maybe I wasn't as disciplined as some of you, you sure don't have to be vocationally in ministry or a pastor to open God's word and commune with him. And every time I do, here's what happens. My affections for the things of this world, they always lessen. The other voices get quieter. My affections for Christ grow. The things of God get louder. And I feel myself just pressing into the things of God and my life gets full, and I'm experiencing the fullness of what God has for me. I prosper when I'm submitted to his word. I'll finish with this story. I went to East Asia about uh, 10 years ago, 
I'd never, it was my first trip overseas to a place where the church is under heavy persecution. So we were ministering to the persecuted church. We were supposed to bring theological and doctrinal training to the persecuted church, which is a really humbling thing when you meet these people. But um, the, the folks gathered, not in a setting like this, it, it, there was no freedom to worship. Matter of fact, some of those that we met there had been imprisoned, beaten. One guy was all scarred up. He had just come out of prison where God had miraculously freed him and walked um, for about eight straight days to get to this place where we're meeting as led by the Spirit of God, things that my mind can't even really understand. But we would gather in this apartment at night. Uh, the, the folks would, would work their jobs, many of which were factory workers. They'd work during the day. They'd come together. We met at around midnight. We did that because we were meeting in secret. We weren't allowed to meet, so there would be a, a knock, a little two-bedroom apartment. There'd be a little soft knock. We'd let everybody take the shoes off outside. They'd come in. We packed this two-bedroom apartment with about 50, 60 people every night from about midnight to 3 a.m. There's when the training took place. And, uh, and, 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 and let me tell you what happened. They, they did, no one brought their Bible. You weren't allowed to just walk down the street with your Bible on the way to the training conference. So no one had a Bible. So I remember thinking this will be different. You know, I, I, we, we can't do what we normally do and have everybody follow along with their Bible. I was mistaken. You know what they did? Um, Brother John uh, and Brother Gal were two kind of the patriarchs of this group. Brother John w- would sit in a chair the fir- about the first 30 minutes. They would begin to sing, just quietly singing. Of course, I didn't know what they were saying specifically, but it sounded like hymns of God in Chinese, um, in Mandarin. And so they would sing. And as they did, I watched, I uh, sat with Brother John's son, Jacob, and he translated. And I listened to Brother John. He was sitting in a chair against the wall with his eyes closed, and he was talking. And Jacob was translating, and he was, he was quoting a chapter of Scripture. So I remember the first night he quoted Matthew 13. It was a pretty long chapter. And as he did, there was about eight women around him, and they were furiously scribing everything he said. And then when he finished, this took about 30 minutes, when he finished quoting and they finished furiously scribing, they turned around, and they had about another 10 folks, and together they all furiously scribed it again. And then they would pass out the sheet of paper to everyone there who had been just praying and singing songs for about 30, 40 minutes. Now they all had a copy of God's Word. Then came the part where I get up there and educate them on theology, which at this point was so humbling, I just wanted to crawl in a hole and cry. But then I would teach, I would teach theology, and, and, and we all had the, the scripture, and we finished. You know what they did with this, with this effort of, of hitting in a man's heart and scribe? They would crumble it up and throw it away until they go, and they'd come back the next night. I would tell you, I, I noticed something about these people living in that condition of not what we would consider prosperity, is it? But I want to tell you that that group, as much as any other I've seen, any other place, they were as hopeful, as joyful, as peaceful, and as victorious. If you could have prayed with them at night the way I prayed with them in the wee hours, you would have heard of people whose spirit was victorious. I taught them theology. They taught me prosperity. And I had nothing to do with material gain. These were people who were submitted to God's word and they were prospering. I can't do any better than Prof Hendricks. Read your Bibles. Read it. Read it. Father, you are a good and loving God to give us a perfect treasure of heavenly wisdom that we can freely open the pages of scripture and dialogue with everlasting God, creator. 
you're merciful to do that for us. Lord, thank you for the commissioning 3,500 years ago, which speaks loudly into our ears this morning. Get away from the distraction. Speak my word. Meditate on it. Careful. Do this. So that you might know the fullness that I have for you. Oh, Lord. Let that be true of me and my family. Let that be true of our church. Let us be a people of the book. In a world full of noise, let us be a people of the book. Deepen our affection for you, Lord, and let us not be quenched until we are feeding on your word. And let us find the joy and the peace and the hope that comes with prospering. Thank you for your promise and your presence and your power and for the pattern for victory this morning. The word of God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.